0: Thank you for joining us for a message from the Christian Fellowship Church of Candu, North Dakota. Please visit our website for more information about our church at CanduCFC.com. Well, as you can see on the screen, uh, this might hearken you back or remind you of what we did uh, last Sunday. There was a time in the service where we had papers and we were filling them out and just asking if anyone had a question that they wanted to submit something about God or about church, about the life of faith, about the Bible, anything like that. And we were going to try to tackle as many of these questions as we could today. So that's exactly what we're going to do. And that's why we're calling it You Asked For It, because literally, you asked these questions. And now we're going to try to seek some answers together. For Just for the record, man, I love this. I so enjoyed this because. It's one thing for me to seek the Lord and and get a sense for what I feel God is asking me to speak on or teach on or whatever, but I enjoy it so much when I hear questions directly from the people of this church and say, these are the things I'm wondering about. This is what's on my heart. And when we can address those kinds of things directly, I think it's a a great way for us to be spurred on in our faith. So I'm going to do my best because sometimes we ask questions and it's like, oh, did they mean this or did they mean that? So I'm going to do my best to answer what I think you meant. And if I'm totally off, please come and follow me or find me afterwards and say, Jeff, I asked that question and you have no idea what I meant. Okay, no problem. And then we're going to seek the, the truth together, okay? I would really love to, to have a conversation if somehow I misunderstood. Um, yeah, so I think, I think that's the preamble. We're just going gonna to get into it. I have no notes this morning, nothing on the screen for you to follow anyway. I have notes here, don't worry. But if there's nothing for you to follow on the screen. But if you're quick with your Bible and you want to turn around and, and make notes and, and highlight and underline things as we tackle them, I think that would be great. So there were some questions that will require a few more minutes to answer, kind of a long answer thing, and some that were very short, and we can get through in just a a minute or two. So we're going to start with a couple of the the longer answer ones, and then we'll see kind of where we're at with our time. First question that we're going to tackle today that someone submitted last week is this. They asked, will I be ready to go to heaven when it is time? That's a great question. I think a lot of us should be wondering about this. We should be wondering about eternity, right? So it's interesting. We kind of answered part of this last week when we were talking about the, the parable of the 10 bridesmaids and we were talking about being prepared, right? So readiness and preparedness, there'd be some uh, similarities there. But what we can learn from what we saw last week is that the first and most important way to be ready to go to heaven is by having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Heaven is the home of those who receive eternal life. And in John 3.16, we we know this verse. This is the first verse that so many of us memorized when we were kids growing up in Sunday school. It says, can we say it together? Do you think we can do this by memory? Oh boy, this is a bold move, Jeff. I don't know. All right, we're going to do the NIV translation or KJV, whatever you like. Just say whatever version is on your mind. We're going to say John 3.16. You ready? For God so loved the world... That he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have what? The everlasting life, or eternal life, or forever life, whatever your translation says. That's right. So it's belief in God's son, and who is God's son? That's Jesus. It's belief in Jesus. That is the primary way that we are ready to go to heaven. But there is more There is more that is meant to follow the salvation experience. There's more that is meant to help us be even more ready for heaven. Okay? So let me ask another question here, kind of in conjunction with the question we're answering. Does following Jesus here on earth resemble living with Jesus in heaven? Just think about that one. You don't have to answer out loud, but does following Jesus... Here on this earth, today, in the way we live, does it at all resemble what life with Jesus is going to be like in heaven? It's kind of an interesting question, right? For me, I believe that the answer is yes, or at least it's supposed to be, okay? So, of course, there are going to be some significant differences. Obviously, we're not living eternally here on earth. We have aches and pains. We have you know, sorrow and, and weeping and all that kind of stuff here. And in heaven, all those things are going to be gone. We can read about that in Revelation. But Jesus taught his disciples something interesting in the way that he taught them to pray in Matthew 6. He says, your will be done on earth as it is where? In heaven. In heaven. Oh, okay. So what does that mean? Jesus is teaching his disciples saying, hey, I want things to happen just the way they're happening in heaven according to God's will. I want those things to happen in the same way here on earth. That's what we need to pray for. So if that prayer is what we're meant to pray, that would lead me to believe that even Jesus thinks that there should be a resemblance between life on earth... And what eternity is going to look like perfectly in heaven. It's not going to be perfect here, but it should at least resemble the what we're going to be walking into one day in eternity. I think obeying this prayer is is a part of readiness for heaven. If we truly and genuinely want to be ready to meet heaven or to enter heaven, then it means that we're going to be living in a way that heaven, it's not going to be a rough transition. It's going to be a natural and smooth transition because our hearts are already set on what heaven has in mind while we're here on earth. Does that make sense, friends? Okay, good. So it's interesting that also in Philippians chapter 1, Paul says something here that I think contributes to this whole idea. There's a few verses in Philippians 1. If you want to turn there, you can. Uh, But I'm starting at verse 20. So Paul says this, For I fully expect and hope that I will never be ashamed, but that I will continue to be bold for Christ as I have been in the past. And I trust that my life will bring honor to Christ whether I live or die. So there's an important heart attitude that I think is revealed in this passage. Paul is teaching us that whether we are going to live a long life here on earth or Perhaps we are facing the prospects of death. Our heart should have one goal at all times, regardless of the location that we feel we're going to be in for a long time. And that goal is to honor Christ. See, this heart attitude from Paul also connects with this idea, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, doesn't it? Paul continues in verse 21 saying, For to me, living means living for Christ, and dying is even better. So he says here, living, living for Christ is my purpose in living here on this earth is for Christ. It's to honor Christ. And if I die, if my life on earth is over and I enter eternity with Christ, that's even better. Because I get to be with the one whom I am serving. You see how there's a continuity of ideas there? It's not like we're living one life here on earth and then it's like, oh, I'm going to die soon. I better start changing gears. I better start getting ready. Oh, no. The life on earth that we live is preparation to be ready to enter heaven. Does that make sense, everybody? This is an important thing, I think. In verse uh, 22 to 24, Paul continues saying, but if I live, I can do more fruitful work for Christ. So I really don't know which is better. I'm torn between two desires. I long to go and be with Christ, which would be far better for me, but for your sakes, it is better that I continue to live So because Paul has allowed his heart to be taken over so completely by Jesus, all he sees, no matter where he is on earth or, you know, potentially entering eternity is the wonderful realities of his life lived to honor Jesus, to honor the will of God. So I feel like scripture is telling us that being ready for heaven should come naturally for all believers because we're so focused on God's will in our lives here on earth, not our own. Just like what Jesus taught us to pray. God, would your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven? If we pray that, that means that our will actually is out the window. We're we're surrendering more in that prayer to God's will and to preparation and readiness for heaven than we are to being the opposite of ready, right? So instead there will be joy and excitement to experience everything that we've been striving for our whole lives instead of this fear like, oh boy, I have unfinished business here on earth. Oh boy, I don't want to leave my friends and family. We're going to have this perspective like, no, heaven is exactly where I want to be and I can't wait to get there. So if we go back to this question that this person asked, will I be ready to go to heaven when it is time? I see in Paul a man who is ready. He's ready because God is the center of his life And he's ready for eternity right now. And it was something, it was so funny. I thought of this just this morning as I was reviewing my notes. Has anyone ever been to a water park? Has anyone ever stood at the top of one of those slides that kind of disappears into the clouds? And then you re-enter the atmosphere before you actually (laughs) touch the water? Those things, I'm terrified of those slides. I am not a heights guy. I don't mind heights. I just don't like falling from them, you know? So... (laughs) I thought of this though, I think that being prepared or being ready to enter heaven is like someone who's waited in a long, long, long line to go down one of these really tall water slides and you get there and if you've been waiting and you know what you're in for and you know how great heaven is going to be, you don't stand at the precipice of this slide and say, oh boy, I am not ready. Because you haven't been thinking about it. You've been talking to your friends. You've been worried about other things. But if you are excited, say, all I can do is stand in line because I cannot wait to go down this water slide. When you get there and it's your turn to go down, you say, this is what I've been waiting for. I've been focused on this for the last six hours as I've been standing in line because this is all I want. Yeah, it is a long line. But just think about that. Think about about when we get to the end. and, And maybe maybe we're in a bed, we're waiting to die. Maybe our our quality of life has diminished as lots of ours do here on earth. What if we look back and say, oh man, I am not ready to die. What does that mean? It means that we haven't been focused on the end at all. We've just been focused on this, this life. And this life is not what we're supposed to be focused on, right? So I I just think that's uh, uh, my, my idea of understanding how to be ready for heaven would be focusing on it here and now. All right, uh, next question that, once again, I didn't have any uh, names attached to any of these. I had some guesses. It was actually kind of fun. It's like, oh, I'm pretty sure this person asked this one, but I really have no idea. Someone asked uh, this one. I like this question. How did Jesus deal with rejection? What a good question, right? How many of you have ever felt rejected in your life? Wow, you guys are amazing. If you haven't, maybe you're like that guy or that girl who asked someone out and it's like, yeah, of course they said yes. This is who's asking, right? Maybe that, you know, maybe that's, Melissa's looking at Barry. I like that. <laughs> Barry, it's okay. You're a stud. It's cool. So rejection absolutely was something that Jesus dealt with. Um, the <laughs> okay, maybe we should pray. I don't know. The prophet Isaiah says this in Isaiah 53, 3 about Jesus. He was despised and rejected by mankind a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. That's a description of our savior. That's a description of Jesus, right? So yeah, absolutely. Jesus faced rejection in a monumental way. He was rejected by the entire human race. He was rejected by the very people that he created. We rejected him through our sins against him. No one has faced rejection by literally every single person that has ever breathed like Jesus has. At his birth, he was rejected by King Herod. King Herod wanted to kill him, right? All the boys, two years old and younger, were, were killed because this king felt threatened by an infant who was claimed to be a king. During his ministry, Jesus faced constant rejection by the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and others who refused to believe in his message about the kingdom. And Jesus was rejected by all people in his death on the cross, a humiliating and excruciating way to die. So what did Jesus do to handle this rejection over the course of his life? How did he handle the rejection of his ministry, his message, and and the fact that he was the son of God? At the end of Mark 11, Jesus is teaching in the temple, the day after he chased all these merchants out of there. Remember, they're in there and they're, they're changing money over and they're like selling people sacrifices because, oh, you don't know that pigeon's not good enough. That lamb's not good enough. But tell you what, I got one that you are going to really love. This one's perfect. It's going to cost you, but this is what you want. So these people who are making the temple into a place of business, Jesus chased them out, kicked over their tables and got them out of there because he says that the, the temple of God, the house of God is meant to be a house of prayer. Right? So he, he had just done these things the day before, and now he's teaching in the temple the next day, and the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the Jewish elders, they come to Jesus, and they ask him in verse 28, by what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you authority to do this? Basically, they're saying to him, who do you think you are? In this very confrontation, the Pharisees are rejecting Jesus, his message, and his authority. Part of Jesus' response to this rejection comes one chapter later in Mark 12. Jesus begins to teach a parable, and at one point he quotes Psalm 118, verse 22 and 23. And he asks these Pharisees and the religious leaders uh, this question, uh, haven't you guys read this passage of scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. So what's Jesus saying here in his response to the confrontation and the rejection of the Pharisees? Basically what he's saying, is he's foreshadowing once again, he says, you're going to reject me and in fact kill me, but through my death, I will bring to life the plan that God has always had in mind. And I will give life to anyone who accepts me. And this is my father's goodwill. So Jesus deals with the rejection and the confrontation by sticking to the plan. He doesn't deviate. He doesn't worry about what these other people say. He says, actually, you guys are going to reject me and that's fine but my father's plan is that you were going to reject me and that I'm going to stick to that plan. And it's going to be to the salvation of the entire world. So when rejection comes, Jesus doesn't wilt. He doesn't say, Oh geez, I can't believe I've offended someone. God, we got to change plans here. This isn't working. Someone's upset. Like, like, Jesus never even blinked. He never wavered in one instant. He knew, no, God's plan is the plan. The will of God in heaven is coming true here on earth, and I am going to walk it out in obedience no matter what. That's what he decides to do. And it's amazing that Jesus passes this way of dealing with rejection onto us. Jesus teaches in Luke 6, verse 22 and 23, saying, Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. That's Jesus. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, because great is your reward in heaven, for that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. Man, as we live for Christ, it's very likely that some people will appreciate who we are and the love that we have for the Lord. They're going to say, wow, I I want what you have. Or I want to join your church in worshiping because I see something different in you than I see in other places. But it's also just as likely that some people will be harsh towards us because of our faith in Jesus. I've lost a job because I was a Christian. I've been bullied when I was in high school because I was a Christian. It's okay. Do we abandon ship at that moment and say, well, this isn't what I signed up for. Actually, it is. Christ says, you will share in my glory if you share in my suffering. And part of the suffering that he faced was rejection. This world is not our home, right? We're being prepared for heaven. That's what we just talked about in the previous question. So when when we're rejected by the world, it's actually a confirmation that our faith in Christ is on the right track. If no one ever rejects you for your faith, either no one can see it or perhaps we're not living it out at all. I'm not trying to to cause people to doubt their salvation or anything like that. But the way that we live on this earth, there should be a little bit of conflict that comes our way. Because people shouldn't all agree with what we're doing. There should be unbelievers who are uncomfortable even. It's kind of a weird thing to say, but they shouldn't look at us and say, oh yeah, that guy's exactly like me. They should never say that. They should say, there's something different about that one. Whether I'm comfortable or not, it doesn't matter. But there's something about that one. They're so in tune with following Jesus. They don't waver from the plan. There's something different about them. So we need to stay focused on the mission. I believe that's the best way that we handle rejection. And you know what, friends? Think about it this way. If we all do that here in the Christian Fellowship Church, if we all stick to the mission, how much of an encouragement is it to the next person? to stick to the mission as well. If I'm struggling, but I look around and I say, but man, I'm part of this church. And every time I doubt, I look at these people and they love their neighbors. They worship God with enthusiasm. They say all these things in praise and prayer about what God is doing in their lives. Surely they're sticking with it. And if they can do it, so can I. I I think that's what uh, the benefit is when we all stick to the mission and, and handle rejection well together. Okay, next question here. Uh, last long answer one before we'll kind of get into some shorter ones. Someone asked, why do we personally serve the Lord? Tradition or relationship? <laughs> this is a big question. I like this one a lot. Really, this question is calling us to examine our motives for serving Jesus. This person asked, why do we personally serve the Lord? They didn't ask, should we? They they know that we should serve the Lord, but they're asking, why do we do it? Do we do it because it's a tradition that we're following or are we we serving the Lord because there's a personal relationship that is driving us to a lifestyle of service? I'm just going to cut to the chase on this one. If our goal is to serve the Lord, I don't see how that's even possible without a relationship with him. Let me explain. Let's say an unbeliever begins attending a church. They are at this church every Sunday for several months simply because they like being around the people who are there and everyone treats them really, really nice. Then since they enjoy music and they have some talent in that area, they offer to help lead worship. Still, as an unbeliever, they say, I see that we sing at the beginning of every service. Man, I'd like to do that. Why do they want to lead worship at this church? It's because they've observed a tradition, a practice that has been passed down over the years, and they want to join in with that tradition. So, is praising Jesus through singing to him a good tradition? Yeah, absolutely. It's perfect. It's exactly what the scriptures have told us to do. It says in the early church, the people got together, they prayed, they broke bread together, they worshiped, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. All similar things that we do here today. But... Is this person in our little scenario singing to praise Jesus? It's an uncomfortable answer, but we have to be honest. The answer is no. They don't even believe in him. There's no relationship. So how can the songs that they sing be glorifying to God if it's based purely on a tradition and not on a personal relationship now, let's say that someone else, or let's just say uh, another scenario here. Someone begins attending a church for several months, and through the prayers and the witness of the people at that church to this person, they believe in Jesus for themselves, and they begin their own relationship with him. Someone at that church takes this new believer under their wing and disciples them and teaches them how to follow Jesus, just like we're told we're supposed to do at the end of Matthew 28. They learn to love Jesus more and more, and they spend time with him on their own. Then they say, you know, I just I love Jesus, and I love to sing his praises. I can't help but sing in my car to him while I'm driving around. I play my piano at home, and I've learned all the songs that we sing at church. Do you think it might be possible that I could help lead our congregation in worship? Now, let me ask you this. Why does this person want to lead worship? It's because they know Jesus. And from the love that they have for him, they are moved to serve him. That's beautiful, right? Like, that's the goal. We, we know Jesus. We, we get discipled by someone so that we know Jesus more and more. We grow in disciplines and in faith. And then all of a sudden, because our heart is connecting to Jesus so consistently, I'm like, pfft. I can't hold it in anymore. I just want to do all the things that God is asking me to do, not because I have to, but because I want to. Isn't that beautiful? Like, that's the goal. Jesus says in John 15, 5, a familiar verse, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me or without any relationship with me, you can do nothing. So bearing fruit means being productive and useful in our lives for the glory or the honor or the benefit of Jesus. In other words, being fruitful means serving Jesus out of a relationship with Jesus. Can you be fruitful simply by observing a tradition? Maybe you didn't hear me. Ron, let's just make sure the mic's really hot. Can you be fruitful if you do not have a relationship with Jesus? No, no. We should confidently answer this. Let's, on the count of three, we're going to say no, uncomfortably loud, okay? One, two, three. No. We have to be so sure of this. We have to be so sure, friends. Because if we begin to think, well, I'm going to church. What else is there? That's just a tradition. We have to honor God through relationship. It's all about relationship. If a heart's not in it, God's not interested. This is such a a huge thing that we have to be so certain of. All right, we got, okay, we're about 20 minutes. We got a few short answers here. We're just going to kind of ease up a little bit. We're going to dive into some of these few short questions that some people asked. So one person asked, do you think God hungers for our love as well as hungers to love us? Kind of an interesting question. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to answer it because it's two questions in one. So the first part was, do you think God hungers for our love? Yes, absolutely. That's why the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? If God, the one who created us, gave us that commandment as the most important thing, clearly... Us loving him is the top of his priority list. In creation story, we see how Adam and Eve were created and God walked with them in the cool of the garden. They had relationship. They loved one another. That was important to God. So yes, God absolutely hungers for our love. But the second part was, do you think as well that he hungers to love us or hungers or desires to love us? I'm going to answer that one a little differently. I would say yes and no. Because desiring something, in my mind, means that you have not attained it yet, right? So I desired, when I was 23 years old, to marry my wife. I desired to marry her, so I proposed. I said, will you marry me? This is what I want. And she said yes, because who could say no, right? <laughs> yeah, because I'm a stud. Yeah, right. Me and Barry. If you would need any dating tips, I don't know, <laughs> talk to us. We're setting up a support group. Yeah, you you ask these things because there's something that you want or you need, but does Jesus need to love us? Is this something that he hasn't done yet that he wants to do? No. He created us because he loved us. His love is already complete and perfect and total in nature. He is the essence of love. So I'm going to say, no, Jesus doesn't desire to love us because he already loves us completely and perfectly. Does that make sense, friends? Okay, cool. And if you ask that question, whoever you are, and I didn't quite get it, please talk to me. I would love to understand that one better. Someone else asked, uh, how do you have a sermon ready every Sunday? Yeah, I I ask myself the same question every week. No, honestly, it's, it's the same thing that we've been hitting on for months and months and months. Abiding with Christ. I don't think I could be a pastor and I don't think I would have anything to offer on Sunday mornings unless, unless, unless I specifically and intentionally and consistently spent time in the presence of God. Because friends, I'm going to be very honest whether i whether i'm me who hasn't gone to bible school or whether you have someone who's standing up here with a phd in divinity what do you ever call that ministry divinity of ministry or something like that i didn't go to school i don't know what it's called but if they have the highest credentials to be a pastor from the educational sense neither of us have anything to offer unless we spend time with the lord So for me, that's the biggest thing that I need. I spend time with him, and the more I do that, the more consistently I do that, Christ fills me. And I'm surprised. Honestly, I'll look back sometimes at messages that I've preached a couple weeks ago, a couple months ago, a couple years ago, and I'll be like, whoa, that's pretty good. And I think to myself, I don't even remember saying half of that stuff. I don't remember thinking that or learning that. But clearly, the Holy Spirit, when we give him space in our lives, he does something in us that we can neither harness or control or direct. He flows through us. That's For me, that's the way I feel that I have any business ever being up here. It's because Christ is in me. It is not me at all. Uh, Another person asks, was Adam the first man? Yes. Do you want more? (laughs) Yeah, he was. He was the first person created. As a matter of fact, the the name Adam actually means first man. There you go. So, yeah, if you look up the story in in Genesis 1 and 2, you see the creation story. Adam was formed out of dirt. God breathed life into his nostrils. And there he was. He was the first man. And then Eve came along after him. There was no other person created before Adam. So, yeah, that's a short answer there. Uh, Another question here. Someone asks, do you think the chosen accurately depicts Jesus? So for those of you who don't know, the chosen is a a TV show. It's not really on TV to my knowledge. Has anyone ever found it on cable or satellite? No, I didn't think so. It's on YouTube. It's, uh, they have an app that you can find. Um, It's on vidangel. Anything else that I'm forgetting? So it's mostly in in an online form. But The the Chosen is a TV series that depicts the life of Jesus as he's calling his disciples and beginning his ministry. They're in season one. They have eight seasons uh, scheduled. And it is fantastic. Amazing. Anyone, just show of hands, who has watched any of The Chosen? Okay, friends, if you haven't seen it, seriously, it is, it is awesome, and I'm going to tell you why. Because this person asked, does this TV series called The Chosen accurately depict Jesus? And my answer in short, I would say yes. Here's, here's the reason why. In the parts that the Bible actually t- tells, the stories that we see from the Gospels, I think the accuracy, not only of the events themselves, but the personality and the character of Jesus is so spot on. It is just so inspiring and wonderful to watch. And now it's interesting because... In these Gospels, you have these stories, and then there's kind of like a blurry time where you're not really sure what happened between this story and that story, and these people who are creating the show had to use some creative license to kind of blend these events together. So it shows Jesus playing with children. It shows him acting, you know, as a carpenter and doing the things that he would have learned from his father. Does the Bible detail those things? No, it doesn't, but... It, we know that they're very plausible because I think that they've, they've maintained the character of Christ so well. So please, if, you, if you're looking for some TV to watch, uh, watch something that's worth watching. This show, I, I believe, is, is excellent. Uh, last quick answer question, and then we're going to kind of answer the last one in conjunction with communion. So someone else asks, do you and your family plan to become U.S. citizens? Why or why not? <laughs> That has nothing to do with what I intended, but I thought it was an interesting question. So I'll, I'll, I'll give you an update on where we're at. We're in the process or process, whichever side of the line you're on, of uh, becoming permanent residents. That's like a green card holder, okay? So we're in that process right now, and we're, we're, we're focusing on that. Uh, I think that after a certain period of time, you can, there's naturalization when you've lived in the U.S. for X number of years, you can then qualify to be a U.S. citizen. When that opportunity comes, we'll see. Honestly, like we're not, we're not saying absolutely not. There's no way we'll give up our Canadian citizenship. Uh, and there's, there's no way we're also prepared to say, absolutely, we're going to become U.S. citizens. We don't know. We're going to pray about it, and we're going to see what the Lord wants to do. All, the only thing is, for sure that will influence us is that we want what God wants. Amen. That's it and that's all. So sorry, that's kind of a non-answer, but I'm playing the God card because that gets me out of it. <laughs> all right, last, uh, last question. I know we didn't quite get to all of them today, and if you really had something burning on your heart for one of the questions that we didn't answer, you're welcome to, to text me or call me and we can discuss those things together. But the last one we're going to answer today is a really interesting question. Someone asked, should Christians observe the feast days in some way? So the feast days are something that were part of the Jewish way of life. It's an Old Testament uh, tradition or observance that the Jewish people had for many, 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 many years. They're also called the festivals. So if you ever read in your Bible, depending on your translation, some will say it was a feast of this or feast of that. Some will say it's a festival of this or that. The feast days, also known as the Jewish festivals, were mostly annual celebrations of what God had done for his people in the past, but they also pointed forward towards Jesus, the Messiah. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, he fulfilled everything the festivals pointed to. It's important for us to understand that all of these feasts or festivals had two things in common. They were all connected to the tabernacle in the wilderness or the temple in Jerusalem. In some way, that's the the center of worship in Jewish culture. And they all required, every single one of these feasts or festivals required some sort of animal sacrifice or offering. So today, when we talk about a sacrifice, we talk about who? We talk about Jesus, right? That's right. He was the sacrifice to end all sacrifices, This is why when John the Baptist saw Jesus coming to him to be baptized in the Jordan River, he said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. See, these Jewish feasts often had the sacrifice of a lamb or a bull or a goat or a, you know, like there were sin offerings and things like that, pigeons or doves, whatever someone could afford. It was the offering that was given. But the one that is probably most commonly associated with these is a lamb. A spotless lamb was sacrificed in order to atone for people's sins or to celebrate a certain feast or festival. So when John calls, when John the Baptist calls Jesus the lamb of God, he's saying this is the sacrifice that we've all been looking for. This is the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. The sacrifices we've been making to this point are no longer going to be necessary because this guy is going to make all things new. Also, right at the moment... Oh, sorry, I skipped over something here. See, John John says these things. By saying this, John is pointing to Jesus as the final sacrifice, but he's also saying that through Jesus' death... He will once and all take away the sins of every person who believes in him. Those those animal sacrifices that existed to that point, they could never atone for people's sins completely. That's why they had to keep doing them over and over and over again in order to find forgiveness with Jesus. That's why these were annual festivals because people kept sinning and annually they need to continue to, to observe these things in order to make things right with God. But now because Jesus died, there will never need to be another sacrifice made. And now because he's, he's given his life, these feasts and festivals that had been made up until this point no longer needed to be observed because Jesus had done away with sin once and for all as well. Also right at the moment of Jesus's sacrifice, uh, his death on the cross, we read in Matthew twenty-seven fifty-one. That when he died, he breathed his last and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Remember, we said that sacrifice was central to all of these feasts and the temple was also central to all these feasts. So there's something that happens not only to the sacrificial world, but now also in the temple. The, The curtain that separated people from the Holy of Holies, the inner room of the temple, the very dwelling place of God, that curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. And it's an important thing to, to understand that detail, top to bottom, because this curtain was massive. It was 30 feet wide and 30 feet tall. The Bible doesn't say how thick it is, but there's actually reports based on the tradition of the, the weaving that took place in those times for making this curtain that it was up to nine centimeters, three inches thick. So it was a thick beefy curtain. This wasn't something that someone could just reach up with their hands and tear. It would take something supernatural to tear it into from top to bottom. And that's exactly what happened. At the moment of Christ's death, God reached down from heaven supernaturally and tore this curtain open. And this was symbolic to say that no longer will people have to only go to the temple in order to have their prayers heard, in order to worship God. But now God is amongst his people. There's a fullness of his presence with us. Because the Holy of Holies is now opened up and God is everywhere, right? He is with us. He is in us. And now we, in fact, it says in the New Testament, we have become the temples of the Holy Spirit. So if those two things change, if the sacrifices changed, and if the place of worship changed, the temple changed, and it's now the temple or God is living in us, that means that these Jewish feasts and festivals, there's something that has radically changed in them as well. So to answer the question in short, no. No. We are not required any longer to observe these feasts and festivals. If you want to learn about them and study them and and even... Once in a while, observe them with your families. There's nothing wrong with that. I have many friends who do these kinds of things, but it's not a requirement. The reason to do them now may be to appreciate even more how Christ totally took what was known in the world and changed it upside down for the better. No longer is it all about rules and religion and ritual. It's all about relationship. Everything points to Jesus, even these feasts did. So it doesn't make sense for us to focus on a feast when we have Jesus living amongst us. Two verses I found that really helped to understand that this whole principle as well. Uh, Colossians two sixteen to 17. It says, therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things to come. The reality, however, is found in Jesus. So don't focus on the shadow. Don't focus on what the festival is pointing You know, that the festival is pointing to something. Focus on what it's pointed to, Jesus Christ. Interestingly, I'm I'm just going to skip ahead here just a little bit for the sake of time. Interestingly, Jesus took one of the old festivals, Passover, and uh, he totally reappropriated meaning to it. He, He gave it something new that we can still celebrate today. Passover festival was originally observed to remember the time when the Israelites were captives in Egypt. While in Egypt for 400 plus years, uh, the, the Israelites were slaves to the Egyptians. But at one point, the Lord gave the Israelites instructions to put the blood of a lamb on the doorposts of their house as a sign for God to pass over that house and spare the firstborn son of that family. Every home in all of Egypt that did not put the lamb's blood on the doorposts of their house, their firstborn son died on that night. So now if we fast forward to the last time the Bible actually mentions Passover, is when Jesus ate the Passover meal with his disciples. He ate it on the night that he was betrayed by Judas to be crucified. So the meal that we call communion, and that we're going to celebrate together here in just a moment was originally called Passover. Now, instead of remembering the time that the Lord spared the firstborn son of every family in Egypt, we eat communion to remember how God spared us. And Jesus' blood, the Lamb's blood, covered our sins. Isn't that awesome? It's so wonderful, actually, to understand what it was, how it pointed ahead to Jesus, and how Jesus fulfilled it in our lives today. When studying the Bible, this is a, like a bonus. When studying the Bible, we always need to remember that Jesus is the center of everything. If you read a passage and you say to yourself, I have no idea how this connects to Jesus, dig harder. Because nothing in the Bible has meaning apart from what Christ has done for us on the cross. Friends, I'm, I'm excited now. Now that we had this little Passover question, this festival question, we're going to take communion together. We're going to remember that Christ is the sacrifice lamb. And just like God spared people back in the day because of the blood of a lamb, our lives have been spared because of the blood of the lamb. What a great thing to celebrate uh, first off here in 2021. So. We're going to read the scripture that we usually read from 1 Corinthians 11. This is where the Apostle Paul is is looking back at that Passover meal that Jesus celebrated with his disciples. If anyone needs a hand pulling that cellophane off, if you're a nail-biter and you don't have any nails to get that thing up, just look around to somebody else. I'm sure they'll help you out. Cool. Well, I think we're pretty close. So Paul... Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, verse uh, starting at verse 23, For I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night that he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread, and he gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and he said, This is my body, which is given for you, to free you, to be a punishment so that you don't have to be punished. Take this to remember me. Jesus's body was broken and he endured tremendous suffering for us. But the scripture says without the spilling of blood there is no remission or forgiveness for sins. And that's the that's the great thing to see the theme of Christ's redeeming sacrifice all throughout scripture. It was there in Egypt thousands of years ago when they put the blood of a lamb on these doorposts. It's already pointing like, no, it's blood. that that Jesus needed to give in order for us to be forgiven. And he did that. So Paul continues in verse 25, saying in the same way he took the cup of wine after supper, saying this cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. Let's remember. Let's pray to conclude our service. Lord Jesus, thank you so much that you are the fulfillment of everything that we've been looking forward to. Everything that this world has ever yearned for, they can find it in you. That was the same thing today as it was thousands of years ago when you created this world and people were just beginning to know you. Father, what a glorious thing it is for us to be able to stand here in a new year. <clears throat> we're hoping for all sorts of change and new things to come into our lives. But you are something that we don't want to change. And we know that you say you will not change. You're the same yesterday, today, and forever. Your covenant that you made on the cross at Calvary is the same today. That's why we remember it. We're, we're, not, we're not pointing ahead to something new that you're going to do yet to forgive us. We're, we're remembering what you have done. We're remembering what you've solidified. We're remembering the concrete and final sacrifice that was made that changed the realities of this world. The old covenant was gone. A new covenant has come. You are that new covenant, and you, it is sealed with your blood. Thank you, Jesus, for these things. Thank you for questions. Thank you that we can ask things and we can seek your word for answers. And we can know, Lord Jesus, that you are walking with us and directing our lives. I pray that we would be a congregation that keeps asking questions. We want to know you more. And we need to do that. And we can help each other with that. I pray that if we have a question, we would find someone and ask it. We would say, hey, would you want to get together with me and, and let's look in God's word, see if we can find an answer to this, because I just don't know what the answer is. Or if we have to call uh, one of our deacons, some people in this church who have committed to caring for us in a spiritual manner, I pray that we would reach out to them. If people want to call me, Lord, I love this stuff. You've given me a desire for these things more and more in my life than I've ever thought I could ever have. And I'm so glad to love your word and love you. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that as we walk into 2021, nothing else is going to matter besides the fact that we want to honor you And look forward to living with you in heaven one day. We love you Jesus. This is your church. Amen.